Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I've interviewed over um, 2,000 scientists, clinicians, and uh, researchers the past three years, and I look for the, the geniuses in their fields. So today, my guest, who I believe will be one of them, is uh, Professor Laura Knoll. She's in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Immunology at UW-Madison. So, uh, Laura, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, if you don't mind, tell me about your, your research. So um, I am a I am a parasitologist. So my lab studies um, several different parasites, primarily focused on the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, and we have been focused for several years on the brain infection and um, how Toxoplasma causes a chronic infection um, that may be even lifelong in. Um, the brains of any warm-blooded animal, including humans, that it infects. Um, and then lately, I've been um, delving into the intestinal part of the toxoplasma life cycle, specifically why toxoplasma, the sexual cycle, only occurs in cats. So um, almost everybody knows that pregnant women aren't supposed to handle cats or change the cat litter. And that's because of toxoplasma. So toxoplasma's sexual cycle is restricted to the cat intestine. And um, for years, we've had no idea why that is. Um, But only in the cat will the sexual stages develop. And um, only the cat will shed the infectious oocyst stage. And um, so so that's why we we were interested... uh, in can we develop this, you know, as a vaccine platform and just as a molecular genetics, a classical genetics tool. Um, We started this actually about 12 years ago and we finally figured it out this last year. So that was, that was pretty fun. Well, I guess if you could prevent reproduction, sexual reproduction in cats, perhaps that, uh, that would stop people from getting infected by them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cats aren't the only way that toxoplasma is spread. Um, Actually, um, most people probably get toxoplasma from eating undercooked meat. Um, It's that cyst stages can be in in the muscle tissue of any warm-blooded animal. Um, So people, you know, need to be fully cooking their meat when they're pregnant as well as not changing the cat litter. But uh, yes, it would be awesome to be able to prevent that sexual cycle in cats so that people didn't have to worry about their cat uh, during, if, if they were pregnant. So what happens to people that get toxoplasma gondii? Well, most people don't even realize they have infected, that they were infected. So um, in a healthy person with a, um, fully competent immune response, 
they, they might feel like they have a little bit of the flu, might feel a little under the weather during the peak of acute infection, but most people really don't even notice at all. Uh, the parasite's very stealthy, um, doesn't really um, make people very sick, and the, um, our immune response is really good at attacking and killing off that fast-growing form. But what happens um, when people get infected is that immune response attacking that fast-growing form is the signal the parasite uses to become a cyst stage. And then that cyst stage stays in that person, either in the muscle or the brain tissue in neurons um, for perhaps for the remainder of that person's life. We don't really know how long that infection persists for, but um, if a person has a competent immune response, they really don't even notice that they've been infected. And um, that infection stays as that chronic, chronic stage and they really don't have complications. The complications come um, two ways. Um, if a person loses their immune surveillance, so um, in the height of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and early 90s, um, a lot of people that were uh, HIV positive and losing their T cell, uh, CD4 T cell counts, um, were getting cyst reactivation and um, getting sick from toxoplasma, those cysts reactivating in their brain. Um, that's obviously really bad. Um, so that's less of a problem now that we have um, heart therapy, highly active um, HIV drugs, but it still is a problem um, for people that have organ transplants, um, bone marrow transplants, or certain cancer therapies. Um, can cause a person to be immune compromised, and then that cyst can reactivate. So um, it would be really great to have a drug to clear that cyst stage. And my lab had been trying to do that for a really long time. Um, it's really been difficult. We have some drugs that are effective against the fast-growing form, but once it's in that cyst stage, it's really recalcitrant. It really is... Um, not the drugs just don't seem to get at it. Part of that is that it's, you know, in the brain. And so a lot of drugs don't cross the blood brain barrier, but um, that cyst is, um, is really not, um, doesn't get affected by a lot of the treatments we've developed. Have you figured out what triggers the cyst stage, you know, chemically and what triggers it to come out of that stage? Yeah. So chemically um, we can mimic it in tissue culture, um, by either do so basically a stress response. So we can give it different immune signals in tissue culture, or we can just even give it like high pH media. Um, so, so media that is um, pH like 8.3 or 8.4, which is much higher than physiologically normal, um, will stress the parasites out. So we can mimic that in tissue culture. And um, people have figured out um, some of the uh, some of the signals that cause it to become um, a bradyzoite. So we've made good progress, um, and that's why we wanted to develop tissue culture conditions to do the sexual stages and to do the the cat um, the cat stages because those were um, obviously not something that people had really worked on very much, um, and 
So we were trying to come up with a tissue culture method to do that so that we could make some progress on, okay, what are the essential genes and proteins to go through sexual development? How can we knock those out? Um, probably using CRISPR technology, it works really well in toxoplasma. How can we knock those out so we can create a strain that doesn't undergo sexual development that could be given to cats as like a, as a vaccine? When um, toxoplasma is in the cyst stage, is it actively surveilling its environment or is it passive and just changes in the environment activate it? Yeah, that's a great question, and we don't really know the answer to that. Um, it probably is actively sur- surveying its environment. Um, we, we, it's, it's evidence is is leading towards that, but we don't exactly know that question. We sp- for sure don't know that question in people, in rodents, in mouse models. It does seem to be actively surveilling its environment. And because the immune response will stay up in an animal, um, we've just done some work recently where it was up just about at, as high at six months post-infection as one month post-infection. So it, that immune well, response one, stays up. One, one clue is, does, does the uh, toxoplasma have a, its own microbiome? If so what happens to the microbiome of it if it exists during the cyst stage or active stage? And maybe there's a, a communication happening there, or maybe there's some kind of agency its own microbiome is helping it who knows yeah no no that that's a great question and um that hasn't been looked at that much during chronic infection we want to definitely start to do those studies um we want to start we know it changes the microbiome during acute infection and there's definitely dysbiosis during acute infection and even into early chronic but it would be nice to know really long term how how does that happen um we, we're just starting to um collaborate with um some people here there's a lot of great microbiome researchers at the university of wisconsin madison so we're starting to but, collaborate them to look at that but does the parasite itself have its own microbiome yeah that's a, that's another really good question um people have looked um because there are several parasites uh protozoan parasites that have viruses in them um, like Trichomonas vaginalis, um, Entamoeba histolytica, um, Leishmania, and and those viruses, especially for Trichomonas and for Leishmania, have been shown to um, contribute to their virulence. So contribute to how much they cause disease. Um, and people have looked. I'm I'm quite sure I heard uh, David Sibley at Washington University had looked. Um, extensively for or viruses, because um, Steve Beverly at Washington University had um, characterized the Leishmania virus and done really nice work on that. And um, last time I talked to David about it, I don't think he ever was able to find anything. So it doesn't seem that, at least um, so far, that people have been able to find any uh, microbiome of toxoplasma. There are... Um, okay. Uh, There are people that are looking at it and thinking about it. Um, It's interesting, you know, a lot of the uh, parasites, the worms, the helmet parasites, not only have viruses, but they also have bacteria. Um, That's uh, Paul Brindley's work at um, George Washington University has seen that um, 
different uh, flatworms have uh, bacteria and that's needed for their virulence and for their ability to cause disease. So that's pretty cool. Have you uh, or anyone looked at the microenvironment, you know, around the parasite once it's in any given host? Because there may be clues there, you know, the it may be a local dysbiosis that's the start of it. Or again, the microenvironment, it may, it may do some niche construction, you know, like cancer does and other creatures do. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with toxoplasma is the intestinal stages are pretty transient. It's actually going through the intestine pretty fast. Um, and where it has its chronic infection is either in striated muscle, so, uh, you know, heart tissue, um, or up in, the, up in the neurons in the brain. And so we, those are pretty, um, especially the brain is an immune privileged site. So there's really not a lot of other microbes up there, um, at least that, you know, we know of. Um, we had done some work, um, this is a bit tangential, but we had done some work um, a while ago um, confirming that um, animals with a chronic infection of toxoplasma were protected against other pathogens. So um, Jack Remington's group in the 60s had done some really interesting studies that showed that um, rodents that had a chronic infection of toxoplasma were protected against lethal infections of all sorts of different pathogens. They did mango virus and salmonella as a bacteria, and they did some pathogenic fungi. And I always thought those were really interesting studies. So we went back to those about uh, 10 years ago and, and figured out the mechanism and saw that it was really true that um, that animals, mice with a chronic infection of toxoplasma were protected against other pathogens. It's probably in that it keeps its immune surveillance up and that sort of a general immune response, you know, gamma interferon. And so that is going to kill off other infections that it might have. And you'd think that like this parasite uh, toxoplasma is really cool that it's evolved a lot of mechanisms to um, manipulate the host. So that's why I think a lot of people have heard of toxoplasma because they're fascinated by the fact that it um, changes host behavior. So uh, it's been quite nicely done in rodents because um, those are well-controlled studies where they're you know in the same environment and feeding the same food and likely have the same microbiota, that um, animals with a chronic infection of toxo lose their fear of strange places. They lose their fear of predator urine, and they're actually attracted to predator urine instead of repelled by it. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really cool that they'll actually, when you, when you chip them and measure like where they're spending time, um, they're actually spending time by the predator urine <laughs> instead of being afraid of it. So, um, oh, that- um, just a, a strange question is how could, how could the, how could the parasite know that? How could it know that it's, it's host would do that? How could it ever, you know, because because it, it probably evolved. So what the, the latest paper from Dominique Saldati's lab, um, She's in Switzerland. Uh, the latest paper for them thinks that it's just a consequence of the neuroinflammation. It might also be that they're uh, decreasing the dopamine receptors. But, you know, this, this has been evolving with warm-blooded animals for a really long time. So anything that's going to get that mouse preyed upon, that's how the parasite gets passed on. If that mouse, you know, dies 
of old age down in its hole, the parasite goes nowhere. So anything that makes that mouse get eaten either by a cat or by any predator means that the parasite's going to be passed on. So there's been definitely a, a selection happening over the years. Yeah, it's just weird though. How could the parasite know that? I mean, I could see it's one thing for it to know it's its host and, you know, to not, maybe not kill its host so that it can perpetuate, but right. how could it ever know what would outside influence its host? How could it, how could it do that? Any speculation? Um, no. How, how does evolution work, right? <laughs> how do you, you know, you get small changes and then over time those get selected for, right? If you are, because I, I, I doubt it's happening to just rodents, right? There has been studies in humans, and I and I say that with a you know grain of salt because um, it's it's always hard to do these kind of studies in humans because like for example there's been studies that say that humans with a chronic infection of toxoplasma or that are serum positive for toxoplasma um, are bigger have bigger risk takers they're more likely to get in traffic accidents um, that sort of thing but how do you separate out that a person that's a bigger risk taker might not have put themselves in situations where they've exposed themselves to parasites by like eating undercooked food or drinking unfiltered water, you know? So I think those are always really hard studies to do in people. It could be true in people. We, it's just hard to do. Whereas the, the mouse studies have been, you know, very well controlled and done by several laboratories. So those are, I think, really believable. What, um, you said that it'll go into the brain or the muscles. Is, it, is there a difference? Does it always yeah. just go to those two places? No, equally, it's, or? It's, it's largely in the brain. If you do, um, I, can, I can send you a picture if you want. It looks really cool. Um, if you have a bioluminescent parasites. And so you put in firefly luciferase in the parasites and then measure the bioluminescence. It's all up in the head. <laughs> Their heads just light up when they're in chronic infection. So during acute infection, it's all over in the, all over in the body, you know, starts in the intestinal tract. It's in the lungs, starts getting into the brain, but by chronic infection, by day 28 post-infection, it's all up in the brain and you don't really see any signal in the muscle anymore. So is it in the same spot in mice and in people and in uh, cats or is it in different spots preferentially? Well, you know, we haven't really done those studies in people and in cats because we can't experimentally infect people with luminescent parasites. Um, and, and so there's been some biopsy work. It seems to be in the cortex. Um, we haven't also done those studies really in cats. Most of the cat work, um, because there's, you know, people are reluctant, uh, rightfully so, to use cats in research. So the cat research has been really restricted to studying the sexual cycle and um, what's, what's happening in the intestinal tract. Hasn't really looked at chronic infection. I'm sure cats get chronic infection. I know that's been done, that they have cysts in their brains, but um, I don't think anybody's done like a careful study of where those cysts are in the in the cat brain do you ever wonder why why the brain why not somewhere else preferentially and you know what's the usefulness of, of the parasite of lodging there versus other spots how does it well, not lodge there what's the yeah. it get? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it evolved to be there, I think, so that, um, because those neurons don't turn over, right? So it, what a great place to have a lifelong infection and have a long-term infection in your host in a cell that's not going to turn over, that just is going to basically sit there. Um, Neurons are really long-lived. Striated muscle is really long-lived. Also, you know, if you're going to manipulate your host behavior, boy, be up in the neurons, you know? I mean, I'm sure that like infection first started in the neurons and then the behavioral effects started to happen. And then there was selective advantage for the um, behavioral differences. So what, what are some near-term uh, things that you think you're on the threshold of, of figuring out about the toxoplasma gundi? Well, what, what we figured out um, this, over this last year is we figured out um, why the cat. So we figured out the biochemical mechanism of that. Um, and we got it down to a single enzyme. Um, so it's in basically lipid metabolism. Um, cats have a different lipid map metabolism than any other warm-blooded animal. And um, because they don't express that enzyme in their intestinal tract, um, these lipids um, are allowed to accumulate and become signaling molecules. So what we were able to do is um, take an inhibitor of that enzyme and um, feed that to the mice along with a high fat diet and get the sexual cycle of toxoplasma to occur now in mice instead of cats. So that's super helpful for our field because now we have a mouse model and people don't have to do research with cats anymore. Um, And so now what we wanna do, what we're working on is knocking out that enzyme in the mice um, to basically make a cat mouse because uh, the inhibitor right now is like $400 a mouse. So that makes it really expensive to do experiments. Um, so we're trying to make the knockout then uh, we can share with everybody. And then, um, and then we want to do um, a genetic selection for parasites that don't undergo sexual development um, so that we can start to get at what are those key genes in the sexual cycle so that we can start making a cat vaccine. So the end goal is what, a cat vaccine or is it a treatment for people or both? Well, and, and so there's, I have a lot of end goals. <laughs> um, so, so a cat vaccine would be wonderful. That's definitely one goal. Another goal is to be able to produce, so um, I've said that people can get um, toxoplasma from eating undercooked meat. Um, it would be great to have a livestock vaccine. Um, right now, the vaccine that's made for sheep, because um, sheep um, undergo um, multiple um, losses of lambs. Um, uh, I, I didn't explain this, so, so um, I'm going to back up for just a second. Um, the other problem with people in toxoplasma infection is pregnant women. So if women haven't been exposed to the parasite before, so if they're, if they're naive to the parasite and they eat undercooked lamb, um, that parasite um, will replicate and it'll cross the placenta and, and may, may cross the placenta and get to the baby and do damage to that um, unborn baby. Uh, and that's obviously tragic. 
Um, and it depends on what stage of development the um, fetus is in, how bad the consequences will be. Um, if a woman, if, if a what woman, are is, what are the possible consequences? Well, if it's in the first trimester, a lot of times, um, the, the mother loses the baby. So, uh, cause it's, because it also seems to go in the neurons of the baby and, uh, cause it causes brain damage. It's caused, um, if it's later, uh, it causes hydrocephaly. So, you know, with the Zika, vi- Zika virus, there was the microcephaly. Toxoplasma causes hydrocephaly, sort of inflammation of that fetus brain, and obviously uh, mental retardation and really bad consequences. Um, mild cases, so if it's very late, like, you know, month eight, the toxoplasma gets there. It can cause ocular toxoplasmosis, so problems with the eye because it really grows well in that ocular nerve. It has a propensity to grow there. And that um, sometimes we don't even know that that person has toxoplasma um, until they're obviously old enough to have vision tests, but sometimes it doesn't even really show up until they're teens. Um, so so it's the, the consequences can be very varied. Um, but the jet, the idea, the thought is, is that if a woman has been exposed to toxoplasma already, she has a memory response, uh, to the parasite. And so for for me, for instance, I went in before I got pregnant and had a, uh, antibody test. And that antibody test told me that I was already exposed to the parasite. I had it as a chronic infection. So my memory response would kill off the parasite before it had time to replicate and cross and cross the placenta and get to the fetus. So I was less worried about it. In Europe, they test all, all women for toxoplasma. So because it's much more common in Europe than it is in the United States. Um, women go in for pre-pregnancy exam, especially cultures like France and Germany, where they eat a lot of undercooked meat. Um, the women there tend to go in for pre-pregnancy exams so that they know if they've already been exposed to the parasite. So they know how careful they have to be. But, um, anyway, that brings us back to sheep. So sheep, for some reason, don't have a good memory response and they'll have reoccurrent uh, miscarriages of the lambs in in response to toxoplasma. So there's been a vaccine developed for sheep um, called Toxovax. Um, my understanding, I've never worked with it or worked with sheep, is that it's made as that fast-growing form, so it's really unstable. Um, it only has a shelf life of shelf life of ten days to two weeks, and once you open the vacuum sealed vial, it has to be used right away within a few hours. If we were able to make the sheep vaccine as an oocyst, as a cat uh, stage, as a, you know, the cat fecal stage, um, it would be stable without refrigeration in any environmental conditions for up to two years. And it's an oral inoculation instead of uh, injection. So it's, it's a much, it would be much better as a vaccine platform. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you know if any um, parasites are heritable? Do they endogenize themselves into their hosts in such a way that uh, you know, they can be passed on to their offspring? Definitely. Yeah. Lots, lots of them um, cause congenital infections. Um, 
One of the ones that's really sad is um, um, trypanosome. So toxoplasma is probably the best known, but uh, trypanosome cruzi, which is uh, causes Chagas, um, also is passed um, congenitally. Um, malaria, uh, so plasmodium that causes malaria can also be passed congenitally. Um, Leishmania um, can be passed congenitally. Several of the parasites can be. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, the blood, blood the bloodborne ones. Um, it's not uncommon for them to be able to be congenitally passed. Well, congenitally, I guess I'm just unfamiliar with the term. What does that mean? Oh, I'm sorry. How does, how does it get passed? It's okay. Yeah, congenitally means that it can cross the placenta and get to the fetus. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> sorry. Using using too big of words. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. That's fine. But I mean, no, is, is there? Okay, but is there is there an even closer association? You know how like some viruses have literally endogenized themselves into our DNA. Has anyone ever seen a parasite oh, do that? Gosh. Parasite yeah. DNA endogenizes into our own DNA. Yeah, not really. No, um, you know, parasites are pretty big. I mean, they're much more. Their genomes are and are much bigger than either viruses or bacteria. Mm. So. Um, so toxoplasma is like 60 megabases. Um, cryptosporidium is like 20 megabases, whereas, you know, bacteria are, are much smaller and viruses are obviously, you know, just a few genes usually, right? So it's much easier for them to uh, incorporate themselves and sort of become part of our genome, the, the um, CMV and the other viruses that in, in, yeah. interrelate in our, in our genome. Yeah, toxoplasma that genome is, is really big. They're actually pretty complex. Um, they're, they're still obligate intracellular. So they're like a virus and that they have to be inside of a host cell to replicate. We can't replicate them just in, you know, broth, like a bacteria. They have to be grown in tissue culture, but um, they're much more complicated than a virus because they're, you know, they're, they're a lot bigger. A toxoplasma, the, the fat, fast growing form, an individual parasite is, about two microns across by about six microns long, six to oh, 10 wow. microns long. So they're, pre- they're pretty big. You said that um, when, when someone has a given parasite, they're much less likely to have other, uh, other parasites or other infectious diseases? Like, well, that what is was, the, the, the protection it gives, the strange protection? That, that was actually toxoplasma specific. Um, and that was work that um, Jack Remington um, had done in the sixties that, um, animals, he had done mice with a chronic infection toxoplasma and saw that they were protected against all sorts of other pathogens, not just parasites, but, uh, parasites and, or viral lethal viral infection, um, that lethal bacterial infections. And I always just thought those were such interesting experiments because, um, you know, we always think of the, the negative um, consequences of parasites, but this was almost a positive effect that you could see this parasite giving to its host and would also have give a selective advantage to that host. Um, and so I revisited those experiments in a few papers just because um, I wanted to see if it was really true. The first studies we did were with um, high path bird flu. So 
H5N1, the really deadly bird flu. I did this in collaboration with um, Stacy Schultz-Cherry, who's an influenza expert. And um, it was really funny because I was telling her how I wanted to do these studies. And I always thought these studies from back in the 60s were so cool. And she's like, oh, let's, let's try bird flu. Nothing, you know, nothing protects against that. And um, chronic infection of Toxo was 80% protected against bird flu. So 80% of the mice survived if they had toxoplasma. So we were able to figure out and get into the, the mechanism of that and which immune cells specifically was making which molecule. So that was um, a really interesting set of studies. Um, and we also looked at um, other parasites. So plasmodium that causes malaria and um, uh, listeria. So a bacterial model as well. Oh, it's no different than making a kombucha. You know, the bacteria yeah. making us is the acidify yeah. and everything else out. So, right. yeah, exactly. All right. organisms seem to do. Yep, yep. It's just making um, that environment. You know, you're getting immune stimulation from the parasite, and that's helping them not die of lethal infections. And you could imagine that would have a selective advantage for the parasite because um, if a host gets a lethal infection, let's say a mouse in the wild gets some viral infection, it's going to, you know, die in its hole or in its little cubby in its niche and the soil microbes are going to eat it. It's, there's an advantage to the parasite if that host is healthy and out foraging and um, trying to look for food and then it's more likely to be preyed upon. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Cool. So, what do you what do you see as the big advances coming for again your research? It sounds like you're you're getting close to figuring out a lot of things, but in the next few years, what do you think will be the big breakthroughs? Oh, so that we can um, produce, so we can really um, refine our mouse model, so that we make the knockout, so a lot of people can use it. That we also refine the tissue culture conditions, so that we can model this in tissue culture and really get at um, the molecular level. The, the nice thing about that will be that, um, so you've heard of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, right? The bread yeast, the awesome, you, I don't know if you've yeah, ever I've heard of Boulardi, but not, what's the other Saccharomyces talking about? Yeah, so Saccharomyces is, you know, the brewer's yeast and, and beer and bread. Um, and it's really genetically manipulable. And it's easy to do um, classical genetic crosses. And uh, that's what I did my thesis work in is uh, yeast. And I learned the, the awesome power of yeast genetics. And I would love for parasitology to have a genetic model that would be easy for us to do. Because um, right now, you know, when you're restricted to cats, nobody really does genetics. And this way, if we can do it in cell culture, um, in pretty much any line now that we have this inhibitor, um, we'll be able to do cl classic genetic crosses. That's where I want us to get at it, a field, so that we can uh, cross two strains and more quickly analyze and make double knockouts, triple knockouts, and, and analyze whole pathways of metabolism, make vaccine strains that are knocked out in several genes quickly. So um, it'll really help um, our, our field advance, I think. Has, has anyone ever put... Like different parasites in the, you know, in the lab in a dish and watch them duke it out or interact? <laughs> no, but I want to do that. So um, 
we're doing not in a dish, but basically a mouse intestine. Um, we have several um, non-pathogenic parasites as well as uh, pathogenic parasites, and we have a mouse model for them. And um, because people have non-pathogenic protozoa commonly, they're also part of the human microbiome, but they're not really given much attention compared to the bacteria. And, and part of that is that we don't really have much information on these non-pathogenic protozoa and parasites because they're non-pathogenic, so nobody studies them. But um, there's probably five or six that are common in the United States. And um, so we have several of those. And I totally want to have it uh, a duke out in the uh, mouse intestine and see if colonization with the non-pathogenic protozoan affects colonization with the pathogens. So if you have a healthy microbiome that includes non-pathogenic protozoan, are you less likely to get Entamoeba histolytica or Giardia or some other, you know, pathogenic protozoa? That that I definitely want to do. And we're we're working out the mouse model for the pathogens now, and we have the non-pathogenic ones. We're we're probably going to do that in the next year or so. The Duco. Yeah, that's yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, you know, maybe you can have one in a cyst stage and then one in a non-cyst stage and see if it makes the other one wake up and you know react to it. I mean, things like that would be interesting. Yeah, exactly. We can do the infections with. Uh, if so this one mouse strain we have, we can do the infections with the non-cyst stage of Entamoeba histolytica as well as the cyst stage. And so having other protozoans there, how is that going to affect? Yeah, it's exactly the kind of thing we want to do. Uh, last question. Do you, do you know if the parasites give off uh, like extracellular vesicles in the cell-to-cell communication? Oh, yeah, we have not looked at that. And I don't know if people... So the, the exosomes is what you're thinking of. Um Right. Yeah. 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 So, really important question. We don't know. Yeah. Um. I would love to to get at that at some point. Probably. I I bet. <laughs> but we haven't we haven't looked at that yet. Yep. I guess you have to hurry up and do the the research of a hundred uh, hundred labs quickly to figure this out. Right? <laughs> There's always a lot to do. Yeah. But it's yeah, good. There's, there's... It's fun. You know, parasitology and. Parasites have such interesting life cycles. That's what really drew me to parasitology in the first place from, from yeast. Because after a while, I was like, wow, I'm studying fatty acid metabolism and bread yeast. I, I need to do something else. And um, so I was really drawn to parasites just by the complexity of their life cycles and how they evolved the way they did. It's just really cool. So there's lots to do with them. Yeah. Although it's funny, all the parasitologists I've talked to are very interested in their work and they're very excited about it, which is good. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it definitely, um, there's there's always more questions. It's It tends to be a really nice field too um, because there's so much to do. People aren't stepping on each other's toes that much and, mm. you know, people communicate really well and most everybody gets along really well. So it's been a really great community and people share their toys you know um so that's yeah, uh, also really really nice you, you can never be accused of, of stealing someone else's work because you say hey i'm in parasitology <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> well, well very good laura what's what's the best way for people to learn more about your research and get in contact with the lab and perhaps you well they can um 
they can go to my website um, on, on the UW webpage in the medical microbiology um, department. I have a website there. Um, they can email me anytime. Um, they can do uh, literature searches or they can just do Google searches uh, with um, my last name or with my name because I try and I'm now really committed to making all our publications open access and only publishing in the open access journals. Um, oh, that's so that, good. So that everybody can see them. I try to do everything on bioarchive ahead of time and trying to make everything open access. So, so all, especially all our latest work, that's all open access. Um, and so anybody can download those papers and um, look at them and read through them. Well, that's excellent. Well, Laura, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been a yeah, great call. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Richard. This has been fun. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 